Welcome to the Philip Wiley Show. Take a look behind the curtain of professional hacking and hear compelling discussions with guests from diverse backgrounds who share a common curiosity and passion for challenges and their job. And now, here's your host, offensive security professional, educator, mentor, and author, Philip Wiley. Welcome to another episode of The Philip Wiley Show. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Andy from Uno AI. So it's pretty interesting in the industry how people have leveraged automation over the years. Uh, a prime example is Jeff Foley, the created a mass script for doing reconnaissance and OSINT. That he created, why he created that tool was as a network administrator, he created tools and ways to automate the redundant and boring tasks so he could spend his time on more interesting stuff and which this tool's really evolved. And it's really nice that the guy has kept it community-based so anyone can use it for free. Uh, but you know, a lot of other companies have turned around, or other people have taken these products and started companies. So it's very fascinating to see how people have been automating stuff. And it seems like AI is the next level in this automation. You, with chat GPT and the generative AI, you know, really being available to the public like the fall before last and everyone kind of got into it. I remember the first, what got me interested in chat GPT is I saw someone who wrote a script. They did this script. It was someone as a defensive security professional, same area of cybersecurity I'm in, saw them do this and said, wow, I've got to learn more about this. And just seeing some products out there, I worked for a company that was an external attack service management company. They were using NLP, machine learning and AI for their, their tool. They would figure out how to script it do it easier, detect the vulnerability faster than the vulnerability scanner, script it, and then they would go from scripting it to automating it with AI. So it's really interesting to see that. So I really look forward to our conversation, Andy, if you wouldn't mind sharing your origin story because cybersecurity professionals were kind of like superheroes and all superheroes have an origin story. So why don't you share yours? Yeah, so um, I've been working in um, cybersecurity about, about close to 10 years now, right? Um, before that, I was sort of in more kind of traditional tech. Um, I, uh, I've had sort of two, two careers. Um, I was a, a, a semi-professional rower before business school. Um, I say semi-pro because I would make money, but you know, when you make $5,000 a year, you, you, it can't be kind of your full-time gig. So um, I, you know, I, had, I had a full career in real estate on the sort of the more traditional professional side while I, while I was rowing. Um, and then went to business school and, um, you know, spent a little bit of time on Wall Street uh, and then kind of, but, but could even see on Wall Street, you know, what was happening with technology, right? Just absolutely disrupting, you know, that entire industry. You know, obviously you look at what a trader does today versus what a trader did in the mid 90s, you know, open call markets, if you've seen trading places, you know, they're, they're screaming out orders, right? Um, versus traders today, you know, they're sitting in front of Bloomberg terminals, um, you know, maybe on the phone with other individuals, but but almost all that that trading is happening electronically, sometimes with the press of a button, but increasingly the, the funds and the firms that are, are winning there no human is pressing that button, right? They're trading in milliseconds, right? And so I could see that transition in Wall Street and I'm like, hey, th this game is over here, right? And and uh, being a human working here, I'm not sure that um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be the winner here, right? So kind of moved into a more traditional tech 
uh, tech space and had, you know, first I knew a lot of real estate, so I worked first in um, in real estate technology and then eventually into cybersecurity, just because I thought it was the most fun and interesting. It's the land of broken toys. It's sort of, um, <laughs> you know, you get to look at all these different things. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, it's definitely definitely a good description of Land of Broken Toys or or makes you think of the cartoon Land of Misfit Toys. But yeah, it's uh, an interesting area, lots of opportunities. So yeah, you definitely picked something uh, that 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 definitely needs the help. So uh, was there anything specific about cybersecurity that interests you? Yeah, so I, I was actually a history major, right? And so I think it was, um, you know, just kind of there's so many sort of interesting intersections of, of different um, pieces here in cybersecurity. You sort of have this geopolitical overplay where, you know, it's, it's the latest iteration of the Cold War happening right now with the sort of great powers um, essentially battling each other on a daily basis um, in cyber, in the cyber ecosystem. So that was quite interesting. I also just was fascinated by kind of like the history of technology and sort of how how things happen and sort of unintended consequences. So that was, you know, another sort of hook there, right? I, I also just, um, I, I enjoyed it. Like I found the people just really, really interesting. They tend to be, um, you know, not not necessarily linear thinkers, right? They're, they're and I think the, 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 the you know, if, if you work in cyber, cyber, you sort of have to be naturally curious because what you're working on changes every day. So I was sort of attracted by that. And once I, you know, once I sort of got a taste for it, it just sort of like sucked me in, right? Like I I went through the, through the black hole and there's no coming out anymore. Right. (laughs) So what type of cybersecurity stuff did you start out doing? Yeah. So my, my first role in cyber was for kind of an interesting um, company called Dispel and they did um, a lot of stuff using moving target defense. So they would spin up these um, these networks of cloud um, in cloud environments and then create essentially like VPN, single use um, VPN tunnels, which was very useful for kind of um, allowing access to sensitive areas. Um, you know, particularly we, we, we found product market fit in the sort of um, in the OT space, the operational technology space. So, you know, water, um, water treatment plants, they're very big in the bottling industry now. So you have these, these, these OT spaces tend to be kind of um, have a lot of potential security issues if you open them up to kind of the, the wider Internet. So how do you create like a very nice pathway in that is not easily accessible by others? Um, and much more secure even than like a traditional VPN network. So that was my first role. And and with that, I also had a podcast. So, and got to interview kind of all of these great thought leaders, right? I got to interview like some, I got to interview Dr. Ross, um, who's one of the sort of principal authors for NIST, right? And and really fun. Um, A lot of other thought leaders there. Um, Then I actually transitioned. I, um, when I was on Wall Street, I I covered banks and insurance companies and, you know, once you've sort of seen the world through the eyes of insurance, you kind of can't forget. And cyber, you know, cyber events looks a lot like other areas that insurance deals with really well. It's, you know, it's low frequency. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, but when it happens, it's high severity. It's it's really, really bad, right? That That's cyber in a nutshell. It's also hurricanes and earthquakes, right? And so insurance has done that, you know, really, really well for the last, you know, 100 plus years. Um, so I actually transitioned from that, the, 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 from Dispel, the sort of cybersecurity, um, company to, I joined a, 
another company that was doing cyber insurance. Um, I joined to kind of figure out the U.S. strategy, and then that U.S. strategy eventually became its own startup called DataStream, um, uh, where we used a lot of machine learning to really estimate cyber risk and also help pull in a lot of extra data to think about you know, the individual risk of individuals and, uh, and organizations and how that impacted their you know, their insurance rates and, and, and whatnot. And so I was running that for the last couple of years and then kind of had this opportunity to join kind of a new organization that's sort of on the, on the bleeding edge of, uh, of AI and cyber. So kind of jumped to, to do this. Very interesting. It sounds like a good move, but how was, you know, working in insurance before in traditional sense to cyber insurance? How was that? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, um, it was fun and interesting. I mean, I think um, the, you know, we, insurance has been very good at estimating risk and, and really spreading risk. I mean, that's what insurance is a vehicle for doing, kind of um, spreading risk across groups, right? You, um, but also to some degree reducing risk because as part of that analysis and, and risk estimation, you often understand the various pieces that are driving um, losses, right? So perhaps the most famous example was, um, you know, an example from almost 100 years ago with steam boilers, right? So steam boilers, you know, kind of early days were blowing up left, right, and center, right? And with with truly deadly consequences, right? Um, and so there was actually an insurance company that was was created, uh, Hudson Steam Boiler, which combined all of these sort of engineers with. Um, with an insurance product, right? And the engineers would go out and inspect steam boilers and, you know, they'd insure against the, the risks from them, but they also did a lot of things to kind of reduce the actual likelihood of, you know, those blowing up. And that's good for everyone and also good for their portfolio of risks, right? They're, they're not going to have to pay out a lot when, they, when, the, when, the, when the boilers don't blow up. And so you're sort of seeing some of that and, and we were doing some of that playing out in the cyber ecosystem. What are the things that are really driving um, driving losses? Uh, so it was fun. It's interesting, right? I mean, and you're not bored in this ecosystem for sure. Yeah, it's definitely something that's gotten pretty popular, especially with ransomware and stuff, people getting the cyber insurance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think if you are, I mean, I think every organization should have it, right? I mean, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not selling insurance anymore, yeah. um, but... I think you're crazy as an as an organization, even a, a small, very small business. It's surprisingly inexpensive, but um, yeah, makes sense. And I, I would imagine in some cases, say like someone was going to be that need to be socked to compliant, they would probably have to have some type of cyber insurance. I would imagine you're starting to see it as a requirement for sure for a lot of organizations, right? Particularly for small organizations working to be suppliers for larger ones. You know, having a million or even $10 million of coverage, right, is, is useful. Yeah, I've heard of some companies, too, in the cyber insurance space doing, like, ransomware negotiations, you know, if you can find cyber insurance that includes that. Yeah, oh, yeah, um, uh, a good policy is going to absolutely cover ransomware, and, and the insurance agents, will, the, the insurance companies and their um, subcontractors ultimately are, are doing a lot of those negotiations, right? And so I think one of the things that was particularly interesting, you know, you really start to, so many and so many of the folks who are working in cybersecurity, right, are spending the vast majority of their time on the defensive side, right, and thinking about these attacks and what could happen in a very theoretical way. The interesting thing about being on that other side um, was you actually saw you saw what happened, um, both um, from a monetary perspective, but also a logistical perspective, um, and what was. Uh, 
you know, w- what was it like, uh, you know, the, the emotional toll that that took on folks, right? And, and you know, it, it's hard to um, overestimate how damaging those events can be, right? Particularly for small, small and medium-sized businesses. I mean, truly like um, business ending. And in many cases for a small business, that means, you know, personal bankruptcy for individuals or, you know, very, very close to it, right? It's just can decimate um, people's lives. It's just awful, right? Yeah, it's just amazing what cyber attacks can do if you think back to like September 11th and and just all the whole part of business continuity and uh, disaster recovery. You know, these companies, you know, this is kind of these incidents, you know, if you're out of out of production long enough, you can go out of business pretty quickly. Yeah, completely. And I think one of the things that spending time there, right, and literally, I also had another podcast um, and interviewed a lot of incident responders and cyber victims was, you know, the, the sort of message that I kept hearing is that there's not, you know, it's not um, what they needed to do to really protect themselves was not that earth shattering, right? They just they needed to do the basics and they needed to do it consistently um, uh, across their entire organization, right? And it's sort of like, it was a job that they knew they needed to do and never had the time um, or the resources to get to. And that was what particularly um, kind of intrigued me by kind of by what Uno was doing and, and the potential that, that, that AI co-pilots have, right? Because it's, suddenly, uh, you know, just a massive force multiplier for the practitioners in this ecosystem and the ability to essentially scale up the jobs that they are doing in a, in a big way to allow kind of that to happen across, you know, many more organizations and, um, and within organizations in a way that we kind of all know needs to happen, mm-hmm. but just haven't had the resources to, to do. Yeah, I can imagine because so many companies have a hard time finding people, budget cuts and all this, and you need to be able to scale. So uh, what is uh, Uno AI doing to help scale that those uh, functions? Yeah, so our core product is a, is a cyber AI co-pilot, right? And essentially it's there to assist, um, assist security practitioners with a lot of their kind of repetitive and tedious tasks, right? And so there's a number of kind of areas that we've first focused on, right? So one in particular would be around um, vulnerability management, right? So there's lots of vulnerability scanners and kind of identifying your, you know, what vulnerabilities you have in an organization. But also if you, if you've ever sat with the security team, you know, you start to see how many, how many vulnerabilities they have. And it's often measured in the thousands, if not tens of thousands, right? And, you know, and then even within sort of critical vulnerabilities, there's, you know, potentially hundreds of those, right? And so the, but the process for actually force ranking those, triaging those, and then, you know, the steps further down the, the, the line to actually remediate them are, are, are onerous. There's a lot of manual repetitive tasks there. They've got to, you know, look at a vulnerability, understand where in their organization it actually sits, how how problematic would it be if that vulnerability is exploited? Also, what would like it look like if I actually, you know, if I if I upgraded to a new patch, right? That testing, right? It's not as simple as saying, yes, Apple, you know, please install this patch while I, you know, while I sleep at night, right? There's there's more significant issues um, with rolling that out. Um, 
but then also, you know, all the research that needs to be done, you know, as those vulnerabilities, um, you get guidance from the vendor, there may be, you know, 50 pages of, of detail about, you know, that patch and guidance, et cetera, in different systems. So reading through that, you know, is, is just hugely time consuming. So, you know, our bot can kind of take a lot of that, summarize it, give you guidance, show what the blast radius, show where it looks, show where it is in your environment, all of those pieces, report on that, literally write the report about what you, the decisions you made, all the things that like, again, are slowing you down, right? Um, and I think to kind of, to, to, you know, I think to sort of double click on something that you said earlier, right? Like we're in this sort of next phase of, um, of automation or artificial intelligence, right? And I think the sort of excitement around chat GPT has in some ways democratized um, the, the ability for individuals to use some of these, these tools, you know, in a way that, that previously was sort of reserved for those who were able to code, able to understand, you know, some of the very specific languages, truly the experts. Now, you know, not only can, can, you know, some of these large language models do things around generating new text, but they can actually provide a huge amount of those, those pieces to make someone using, you know, I'm a history major, um, but able to interact with these systems and ask with the assistance of a, of a, a large language model to create code that is runnable is usable, right? And that I'm incredibly fascinated with. And you've seen over time when that has happened, when you've seen sort of a democratization of, of core technologies, that's just the explosive impact it's had um, across, you know, the, you know, the, the, the world, right? And I, I live very, very close to the Computer History Museum. So I go and like mm -hmm. look at it um, and you see, I mean, if you roll back, you know, the impact of sort of cloud, right? And what happened there and, the, and AWS in particular essentially democratized that, the ability for organizations to use it. Suddenly you now have just this explosion of SaaS tools that can do all sorts of things. Because again, you, you the ability to, to, you know, get the core, infrastructure to run those systems available drops in price increases in availability the same for the internet and this the explosion in kind of capabilities that that, that happened kind of in the I mean, it's not the early days of the internet. I mean, the internet has been around since mm -hmm. the 70s, but it was really in the late 90s and the 2000s. And then you go back, you know, the PC kind of again and again and again, when you see this kind of entrance of a a new technology and when it reaches a point where now it can see mass adoption just explodes and i think that's what chat gpt in the last year is has started to create of, of oh my gosh everyone and and every business is going to be able to take and do stuff with this and it and we don't even we we can't even predict what that's going to be but it's going to be big yeah and one of the things too just you know the access to people like you kind of mentioned that didn't have access to it before are able to come out with different ways just like going back to that script that i saw once someone write this script for pen testing that you know the more you see people that are working in these backgrounds that didn't have ex have access to that the things that they're doing now that kind of influence and encourage and inspire other people to see what capabilities come out of it yeah i think um i mean it, 
Now, I'm sure if you, if you one of those people who's in the ivory tower and has been able to do this, and you're sort of like, you know, one of few in the security ecosystem. I think, obviously, you're. I think, it's frightening, right? What AI is going to do because you're, you know, the the sort of very very narrow skills that you had are no longer so. So scarce, right? But uh, I mean, history would tell us, right? And we've been concerned about the like the role of automation in kind of removing jobs for close to a hundred years. I mean, you go, if not more, right? You go back, and I, and I there was a great, you know, Medium article that I that I stumbled across, which literally had like headlines and and magazine covers going back at least into the twenties around kind of every major technological innovation and it's and the prognic um and the expectations for it to kind of like put all humans out of work and that's not what we've yeah. seen at all it's turned into better jobs i mean and more back before you know like the industrial revolution before uh you know mechanical plows and stuff you had to depend on mules or ox you know there's a lot of manual process that happened and once that come into place and one of the things people have to look at theirs, someone has to work on these tractors that creates more high tech jobs and better paying jobs than the ones they replaced. And one of my favorite quotes about AI, I'm not sure where it came from was, you won't be replaced by AI, you'll be replaced by someone that uses AI. And I think that holds a lot of truth. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. And I mean, you, you see it in other industries, right? Like the automotive industry, right? We are producing more cars more cheaply, and there's still quite a number of jobs. And honestly, the jobs that are there are higher paying jobs, right? Um, and in some ways, better jobs. They're not yeah. so physically taxing on individuals. And I think we're going to see a similar story play out in cybersecurity. You know, the, I think a lot of the jobs that of folks that are working in cybersecurity aren't that great right now. Mm -hmm. They're they're very they're highly repetitive, they're very tedious, and they're, um, and they're very high stress. And so the opportunity for AI to actually take on and, and, and solve some of those challenges and reduce, reduce the repetitive nature, reduce the stress, give them some time to breathe and, and actually think about the sort of structure of things, I think is going to be, you know. Yeah, it, it seems like helpful. a lower, lower barrier, rent, barrier of entry to people wanting to start out. So in some cases, You've got to have, you know, some kind of degree, all these certifications before you can even get into a security role. And, and, you know, with the automation of some of the things available through AI, that makes it easier for someone to do that. And then folks that are more experienced, it's going to improve and increase their capabilities. And Yeah. And I think, um, you know, and those degrees are are to some degree useful. But I think, you know, if you talk to and I, I talk to a decent amount of kind of senior security folks, they're like, those degrees are not always that helpful. What I really want is somebody who has on-the-job experience because I, you know, the the theory and the practice are so different, right? And being able to essentially bring someone in more junior who mm -hmm. has who's hungry, willing to work, right, and pair them with with uh, you know a smart assistant who can kind of tutor them along the way. And you know, even the most patient mentor can't answer you know your random questions all day long. But a bot never gets tired. You know, is always happy to answer them, and as long as they're providing accurate answers, right? We have, you know, we've all heard about the hallucination problem, but I think it's going to get, you know, it, it's going to get solved for, and and the right the right setup is going to isn't going to have those issues, right? So with Uno AI, I would assume that you guys have your own large learning model that you've trained for specific security tasks. 
And one would assume that these would probably be maybe more accurate than some of the things you see with chat GPT, because sometimes it may be a matter of someone not using the right prompts, but sometimes the data you get back not being correct. So with your, your platform, is it easier for people to get usable data out of it without uh, the false information? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't, you know, we leverage a lot of the, you know, the, the core models that are out there, you know, chat GPT, not, not the, not the open AI chat GPT model for multiple reasons. One, it's like a very general large language model. And also it's, it's not pointed at security resources. So we use some of the other kind of core technologies and, but then we point it at, at sources and you can do things to kind of um, limit its um, the, the, the sources and actually pair it with other um, AI and machine learning models to, uh, to, to, to assure that it isn't, isn't um, creating false information, right? Um, and, you know, that, that's, so, and, and that's sort of where a lot of the, you know, in various domains you see folks going, right? Mm -hmm. you, you're, you, you're creating essentially domain-specific um, versions of artificial intelligence where they, you know, they are trained very specifically on the, on the knowledge base that they need to. And I've seen some of the cases, like you mentioned, OpenAI, the chat GPT, that some of those uh, learning models are only only go back so far. I guess it may be not that current. So there's a lot of things that happens in cybersecurity in a few years. And I forget at one point what I heard that the most current data is. So I guess it's really important to have more current data. Yeah. I mean, I know because I, I play with these models um, a lot, right? I think... Like ChatGPT three, at least I think it it ended in two, two like the data set goes up to I think twenty twenty one right now okay. GPT four may have some more current stuff right but yeah I mean I think you know trying to use a general purpose um, bot for kind of some of these more specific uh, use cases may be at times problematic right and, and problematic on both sides actually right because. Not only the work that the individual is getting out, you may get out the wrong, you may essentially get the wrong answer, right? But the other piece is that, um, you know, the terms and conditions of the of many of those kind of open those kind of um, systems like, like ChatGPT, like they own they own the data, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you read the terms and conditions, once you upload you know, pieces, right? And so I think there was a, a couple of cases of programmers essentially taking their, you know, their code base and, and, and putting it into one of these, uh, these large language model. And now that code base becomes part of essentially publicly available data that that model can, can look at and refer to. So essentially they like violated the confidentiality of all of their systems, right? So I think you, you know, certainly security leaders need to think about um, the, you know, how not only their core security team, but other other parts of the organization are using these. And I think it's a little bit like some of the, um, you know, the other SaaS tools over the last kind of 10 years. Like there's then been this, you know, a, a lot of talk about sort of shadow IT, mm -hmm. right? Like where individuals, because it's so easy to pull a, pull a tool down from the internet and start using it, they're doing it, right? And, uh, and so then that can often create significant security issues, right? But I think a, a security team really needs to think about um, and understand 
what their team needs and not make themselves such uh, an onerous roadblock um, in the process of adopting these new tools. And, and I think an organization and a security team that actually starts to, to you know, engage with some of these tools in their own work, you know, whether they use you know, our, our solution or they use others, it's sort of a little bit they are, um, you know, they're, they're getting um, experience with what the capabilities are in their own domain. And then they're much more informed and understanding of like, okay, how would the core business utilize some of these tools in whatever the, the core business is of that, of that organization, right? So, so yeah, I know with, with, you know, chat GPT, you know, some people made mistakes of putting proprietary information into chat GPT confidential data. So I guess with even with your platform, is this something that they would need to be careful when they're entering this data or is it a little more secure than something like chat GPT? Oh yeah. Um, and, and what we've really, you know, in the background of our team has been in building kind of enterprise software for the last 20 plus years. Right. Um, and so it's really, um, up to an organization how they set up their system. I mean, our, our a core belief is that you as an organization own your own data, right? So you, um, you know, it can, it can live on prem, it can live in your, it can live in an, in an own, you know, your own instance of our, um, of our, of our system, right? But in, in one of the cloud environments and we support multiple cloud environments, right? And then, you know, there's some decisions around like whether you want to allow, um, you know, us to learn off the patterns of what you're seeing and how much you want to participate in that or whether you don't want that at all to happen, right? And, uh, you know, but but of course, right, like not leaking your data into an ecosystem, like that's core to kind of the, the <laughs> you know, what we're building. We, we appreciate in, in great detail that, that concern. So is Uno AI uh, a platform usable by pen testers or fence security professionals? Is this something that, because, you know, chat GPT, it'll tell you this is not legal. You shouldn't do this. And you have to do prompts like I'm a pen tester. Set that persona when you're doing that. Is that is there any kind of security measures in Uno AI or is it easier? Yeah, so for, it's, it, I mean, it is not open to the public. Right. Yeah. So we okay. only engage with like very, you know, with 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 specific clients who then get access, you know, for their team members. Right. And and. You know, our setup has not been kind of on the offensive side, right? It really okay. is on the on the defensive side. So um, there are, you know, plenty of offensive tools out there, right? I, and I'm sure that there's a, an easier way to kind of for nefarious actors to get to what they're needing to, to do, you know, uh, you know, from from the many, many tools out there, right? So it's not a it's not a huge concern of ours right but obviously um but but you're not going to get access to the system unless you're like you know a verified user of one of our one of our clients yeah that's good because even if you did have offensive capabilities at least you know who's using it it's not some nation state or cyber criminal using it so you're controlling yeah yeah access yeah cool well philip what else this has been really fun yeah uh so is there anything else that that you could share about uno ai or yeah, I mean, you know, um, we're just, you know, we're we're early. You know, we've been we've been building the product for a couple of years, but um, with some sort of initial clients who've really helped us along that um, along that journey, right? And the and the product really grew out of kind of hundreds of conversations with security leaders around kind of the problems that weren't getting solved by them. But um, you know, if this is a space that you know you're 
that security leaders are thinking about and, and trying to understand how they adopt um, AI into into some of their functions and think about a co-pilot. Um, you know, give us, you know, ping us, right? We're, we're not that hard to find. Find us on LinkedIn, et cetera, and, and we'd love to have a chat, right? Yeah. I think, you know, the, a, a co-pilot your way is kind of how we're we've been described by, by different folks. So. Yeah, so, sounds very interesting. And for the folks listening, uh, there'll be links to the UNO AI website as well as any kind of social media links and so forth. So thanks for taking time to, to yeah. join me today. It was very interesting hearing about your product and always fun to talk about security and AI. Yeah, yeah. So. thanks, Philip. This is fun. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to The Philip Wiley Show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, to learn more about Philip, go to thehackermaker.com and connect with him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Philip Wiley. Until next time.